The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Big and small questions of the faith. The question. 45 minutes to answer the question. In light of Jesus' call, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, are Christians ever justified to use lethal force in self-defense? A few key principles that guide our new covenant age before we answer the question. Number one, Christians must not avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God executed through his just rulers. Here's Paul at the end of Romans 12 and beginning of Romans 13. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Don't avenge. Trust that God will avenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for the one who is in authority is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. So we're talking about lethal force. And Paul here says, don't repay evil with evil. Leave it to the wrath of God. And then we gain clarity that often that wrath is manifest through the governing authorities that he has put in charge of our worlds. They don't bear the sword for nothing. Christians should expect persecution, we learn, and tribulation, persecution and tribulation, and we should respond to that persecution and tribulation without retaliation in order to bear witness to Christ. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We'll come back to that text later. Luke 21, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. That is, before the end comes, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogue and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governments. Why? For the sake of Christ. This will be your opportunity to bear witness about me. Don't retaliate, because in the face of persecution, you have an opportunity to testify to the worth of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 ends, Hebrews chapter 11 ends in such an amazing way. Just listening. All these people who conquered kingdoms and raised children from the dead and did amazing miracles and without a breath, it says, the same people who by faith did those things, by faith were sawn in two. By faith were spit upon and cursed. Those of whom the world is not worthy. Same faith in Jesus, and you don't know whether it's going to lead you to do great miracles and conquer kingdoms, or lead you to be spit upon and cut in half. Same faith, but those who live by faith are those of whom the world is not worthy. Why are we not worthy? Because a guilty, sinful world is not worthy of having encounters with the amazing love of the cross. And yet, God in His mercy puts you 
puts me in this world to bear witness to such love. So what we're looking at here is Christians should expect persecution and tribulation and should respond without retaliation in order to bear witness to the Christ. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, know this, they're going to persecute you. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not optional. Before Jesus enjoyed his resurrection body, he took up his cross. We as the body of Christ, before we can enjoy our resurrection body, follow him in the journey of the cross. <coughs> Do not repay evil for evil, for, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, I want you to bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Number three, God's kingdom expands by sharing and suffering, not the sword. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. The Crusades in the medieval period were unbiblical. Because in the name of God, they sought to expand the kingdom of God. And Jesus would have none of it. The kingdom expands through the proclamation of the worth of Christ. Through the salvation shared that He supplies. And through identifying with Him in our sufferings. Christians are willing to die in order that others might be saved. A Muslim is willing to die in order that others might be killed. It's a massive distinction between God's way and the way of the devil, who from the beginning has been a murderer seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. Finally, believers must love our enemies, ever remembering that God is our refuge. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is the one who is our helper. He is our shield. Luke 21, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Though you die, yet you will live. That is, in Pastor John's words, what it's worth paying a million dollars for. Pay a million dollars for this kind of truth. Give everything to identify yourself with this kingdom. Everything. And then the question becomes, within this framework of radical love, facing persecution for the sake of the name, without vengeance, but rather trusting the one who has said, I will repay, is there any place for self-defense? If you're going to spend a million dollars, 
of your life for this type of teaching, for this type of living, for this type of king who's leading us through deep tribulation unto triumph? Is it okay to spend 10 cents on a gun? A million dollars, 10 cents. Is there a place for Christians to have a gun, a lethal weapon, with the possibility that you would bring lethal harm to a perpetrator? That's our question for the day. So now we enter in. In light of Jesus' call, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, are Christians ever justified to use lethal force in self-defense? And what I want to do is look at both the Old Covenant and then the New. We're just going to walk systematically through a number of points, noting significant continuities and wondering, are there discontinuities? Murder is a capital crime worthy of the death penalty. Some people struggle with the death penalty. I don't. Christ died under the death penalty for you and for me. God holds to capital punishment. It is necessary for you and I to be alive. It is the entire principle that sin merits death and separation from the living God. Murder is a capital crime worthy of the death penalty. Noahic covenant. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. There is a value that comes in being made in the image of God that is completely different than an ant. You might walk on an ant on the sidewalk and it be no more. But it's a very different thing to walk on a person who is created in the image of God. Abortion is heinous because abortion is about God. It's about the image of God in a human life. A capacity that no other creature on earth has to display God in a distinctive way. And where one takes another's life lightly... God declares death to him. And the agent is not always simply God speaking to Ananias and Sapphira dead. It's rather people. People become the agent of God's wrath. Mosaic covenant. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Exodus 21. Whoever takes human life shall surely be put to death. God is bestowing upon the government a right that I as an individual don't have privy to. Nor does the church. We can't hang someone in our church gymnasium, nor can I take out my neighbor if he is encroaching on my property line. No. But there is something here within the Old Testament context, within the Old Covenant, that said if someone takes a human life, 
unlawfully. Homicide. Non-accidental murder. Then, his life should be taken in return. If he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Now notice that not only is death is the murder of someone to result in the death of the perpetrator. But in the Old Testament, there was a distinctive law that there could be an avenger of death. This is the same reality that we see operative in the book of Ruth, where there's a kinsman redeemer, a close family relative, who is to redeem the woman and the family line when a brother has died If he is single, he's to marry his brother's widow in order that children may be continued on. This is the exact same principle, that if someone in your family dies, the nearest relative becomes the avenger, and he in that instance becomes the, in the old covenant context, this is how the law worked, he becomes the agent of the state to bring about the justice for the sake of the family. Deuteronomy 19, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. How about new covenant? Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger... Just in the previous chapter, it ended with, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. Because, what is the motivating promise that moves us to not repay evil with evil, but to actually give good to those who who harm us? The motivating promise is, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then, he is the avenger in the hand of God, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is the new covenant. This is Paul in Romans 13. That within Scripture, the abuse of others is taken massively seriously by God. And it should be taken massively seriously by us. It is no light matter. And capital punishment is no light matter. Now, what about self defense? Humans must seek to preserve life. This is a principle that covers all of Scripture. That I as an individual, you as an individual, must work for life rather than death. That should be our our dispositional bent. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. Why? Why do you need to build a wall around the outside of your flat roof? Because when you have a party, and things get exciting, someone might fall off and break their neck and die. And then you would incur the blood guilt because you did not build your house carefully. 
Love of neighbor demands that you will do all that you can in your power, in your sphere, to create a dwelling that is safe. Why? Because life matters. We need to be a people who, be, who need to be thinking about preserving life. Ezekiel 33, if a watchman sees the sword coming, oh no, the enemy is on the other side of the hill. How are we supposed to respond? Love of neighbor tells us, oh, I, I love the enemy as he's coming, so I'm not going to tell anyone. No, it's not at all it. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. If you see an enemy intruding and you don't warn people so that they can be ready, you are guilty. Is not the fast this? Is this not the fast that I choose? Old covenant, what does it look like to fast before God? Intriguingly, it's not the absence of food. It is a singular devotion to Him in a distinctive way at distinctive times. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the step straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. Isn't it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your own house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Work for life! That's the old covenant principle. How about Jesus? Jesus enters into the world. He comes... And he sees a bruised reed. And he doesn't break it. He sees in the soul of a person just a faintly burning wick. There's not much light left. He doesn't come up and blow it out. It's not the kind of Jesus he is. He's a savior, not a killer. He works to preserve life. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, to open up his ministry, citing Isaiah 61. Why? The Spirit is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Work for life. And if Jesus is walking this way, what will it mean if we're following Him? Work for life. Work to preserve life. Not to crush. Not to abuse. We need to be a people who are for life. Now, what would that mean if we're seeing someone else oppressed and abused? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One of the great ministries to my soul that God gave when we lost Chernet. More than any of the adoptions of my other three children, the loss of Chernet moved me to cherish the gospel more. Why? Because adoption on earth is but a picture of something greater. Just like marriage on earth is but a picture of something greater. And the pictures can break. But the reality never breaks. And even though lawyers and poverty and the life of a once dead father, his dead father showed up alive. 
Not resurrected, just appeared unexpectedly. Courts and governments and judges can render adoption impossible. But if God sets forth to seek out this little lost boy and to save his mother, nothing on earth can stop it from happening. He can overcome the deepest darkness. Lazarus, come forth! He couldn't come out of the gratuit, but but when Jesus spoke, the power of the living God, the one who said, let light shine into darkness, shone into that tomb and brought a dead man forth. That's the power of the gospel. And that's why I have deep hope in the gospel and why losing Chernet heightened that hope because I I had to latch on to the confidence that though that boy may not be with me, our God has not forgotten him. And he alone has the power to save. When someone is assaulted, the Bible justifies defending oneself and others at times with lethal force. Here is the nub of the question. Let's look. Psalms 82. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Will you obey that command or will you not? If it happens to be your wife or your child... Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Proverbs 24. But now it gets very clear. Exodus 22, 2 and 3. There's two parts to this. Number one, if a thief is found breaking in to your home, you wake up in the middle of the night, you hear something rumbling, and it's a thief. You're in a culture... Without lights, you can't just pop on the switch and see what's going on. You have to fumble with your, with your flint and get the oil lamp going. If a thief is found in, is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But notice, but if the sun has risen on him, so there's an assumption. The first half of the verse assumes that the thief has come in at night. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for the one who kills him. If he, if he dies in the night, no blood guilt. If he dies in the day, blood guilt. What is the difference? The person who killed him shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And first note, if confronted by an intruder at night, Exodus suggests the defendant can rightly defend himself with lethal force, seeing as he is unable to know whether the perpetrator seeks only to steal property or to harm through acts like kidnapping, rape, or murder. If the assault is in the daytime, it's expected that the intention of the intruder can be known. If it is theft, then the defendant is not allowed to slay the offender. And if he does, he will be counted a murderer. But notice... 
This law opens by saying he's a thief. But in the night, we don't know what his intentions are. It could be to to rape my wife, to take my children. And the assumption of the text is that I have every right to defend, even if it means lethal force. But if I wake up in the morning and I come out onto my deck and I see someone picking up my bird bath and running off my property, I have no right to take out my bow and go after him. None. This law does not address other violations, though. It's focused on thievery. Other violations like kidnapping, rape, murder, all of which are worthy of death. If the intent of the offender was known to be one of these, then a likely assumption of the text is that lethal force is legitimate. Because at night, when you couldn't discern his intentions, lethal force was legitimate. In the daytime, you discern he's a thief and not a kidnapper, a rapist, or a murderer. Kidnapping results in the death penalty. I already noted that murder results in the death penalty. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. How about rape? But if in the open country, the point is that there's no... She may have cried out. And nobody could hear her. The very next law talks about how a man comes and he and a girl are found out, are found together. And they're in the city, but they're found. The point is that they're found. They're in a place where there's other people and all of a sudden somebody walks in on them. And the implication is she, she didn't cry out or people would have heard her. And everything changes when there is mutual intent. But in the context of rape, if a man, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who's betrothed, then the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense perishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Rape is punishable by death. All I'm wanting to see is that all I'm wanting you to see is that there are within the realm of what is the state allowed to bring. They are allowed to bring the death penalty for certain offenses. But then we step back and we say also in the context of self-defense there is also as if they are in that moment an extension of the state. Legitimated self-defense with lethal force. And no one is held guilty according to Exodus 22. 21. Murder, kidnapping, and rape are capital crimes worthy of death, and the objects or witnesses of such crimes may justly use lethal means to thwart the perpetrators if they are in the midst of the act. That's how the Old Covenant, I believe, would have talked about our questions. In the lowest parts of... Here's Nehemiah 4, just... Just look and see how he talks about this now. Nehemiah is in the days of initial restoration. He comes back 
The temple has been raised, but there's no city of Jerusalem. There's no wall. And because of that, the um, Samaritans with Sanballat and his crew are building a raid party who want to come in and destroy all those who have returned, the very small group of Israelites who've returned to Jerusalem. Notice how Nehemiah talks. In the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans. That's the same word for families. I stationed them by their clans or families. What did he station them with? With a sword, their spears, and their bows. Now they need to build the wall. But they also need weapons for protection. The families need weapons. This is not a standing army. This is family self-defense. I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of these intruders. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him. The one who is great. The one who is awesome. Remember and fight. Notice there's not a tension there. You can live absolutely confident in your God and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives and your homes. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand. So he's picking up a block, putting it up there, scooping the mud, putting it in the trowel, but all the while he's got his sword. It's amazing. Those who carried the burdens loaded in such a way that each labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside him. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Notice what he said over here. You remember the greatness and the awesomeness of our God and you fight. But in the very process of the humans picking up their lethal weapons in self-defense of their families and their brothers and their community, there's a conviction God's the one who's working. There isn't a separation between their God dependence and their commitment to take up arms. God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard, that that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So note one. Gathering by families. These are the citizens who are defending the city. They're not soldiers. They're not trained law enforcement officials. The families were armed and ready to apply lethal force if it meant protecting their own. Note two. The swords, spears, and bows were the handguns, shotguns, and rifles of the day. They could have gotten longer range weapons by picking up sling stones, which were amazingly lethal. Apparently, you can throw a sling stone 150 miles an hour up to a quarter mile in distance at dead accuracy. 
And they're throwing tennis ball-sized stones. And we have thousands of them that we've found archaeologically. They were shaped all the same size, roughly the same weight, out of the same granite or limestone. They could have picked them, but that would have taken a lot more work. They didn't have time. So they had their swords, they had their spears, they had their bows, and they would defend if the enemy came in. Carrying lethal weapons with the willingness to use them did not minimize their faith in the great and awesome God or their confidence that God will fight for us. Carrying the weapon of slaughter was a wise step of God dependence. New covenant. You remember the story of Moses slaying the Egyptian? How are we to process what he did in that context? Here's Stephen's perspective. And seeing one of them being wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He sees someone being beaten to death. What does he do? Does he stand there and let it happen? Or does he enter in in order to defend the weak and the oppressed, even if it means by lethal force? And he did. And it seems as though Stephen is validating Moses' action to me. How about Jesus? Jesus says to them, this is... This is in the same chapter that we're going to see the Garden of Gethsemane episode. And so we're going to have to read these two episodes together. So this is the upper room. They've just enjoyed their meal together. They're getting ready to go out to the garden. And there's a sense of beginning, of future orientation. He's already said, I will not eat this meal with you again until I come to establish my kingdom. So, but he's also said, swords are not part of my kingdom. That's what he told Pilate. So, if you have a sword, it's not about expanding the kingdom. But it may be about self-defense. And there's a difference. You don't do evangelism with a sword. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag, remember when he sent out the 70, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you ever lack anything? They said, no, we did not. Nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, take your knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So in identifying with Jesus... We will be among those who are viewed as transgressors, violators. What is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So we, we can approach this text with some different lenses. And I'm going to give you mine. And I'll just say I read this text differently than Pastor John Piper does. 
Two swords are fine for eleven apostles, which suggests that self-defense shouldn't be an obsession. It also suggests that probably not everyone in this room should have a gun. It may also suggest that when operating in groups, not everyone needs to carry a weapon. But when someone is assaulted, the Bible justifies defending oneself and others at times with lethal force. So I look at this text and I say, he says, take two swords. And it suggests that there could be harm that comes to them in a distinctive way. Now notice where we're at, Luke 22, 35 through 38. Now we're just going to go just a few verses ahead when Peter's going to take out the sword and chop off the guy's ear and Jesus is going to talk to him. We have to be able to put these two texts together. Had Jesus not said, take two swords, there wouldn't have been a sword to chop off the guy's head. Or ear, sorry. That is a head. Did I say head the first time too? Ear. Anyway, ear. I think the Bible would teach there is a right that every person has to self-defense. But there are also times where you may see, for the sake of the greater cause, or for the sake of the mission, whatever God has given you, you relinquish that right. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has already come. He's kissed Jesus' cheek. And the soldiers are there. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of us. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Now notice. What do you bring against robbers? What's Jesus' assumption? When I was with you day and night in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Look at the text in Matthew. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Something to keep in mind. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At, the, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat at the temple in teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. So do you see what's happening? Jesus has in his words an assumption that if, if a perpetrator were to come toward you, you respond in a certain way. You're treating me as if I was a robber that you come to me in this way. But now the government is at work, not working good on Jesus' behalf, but actually working evil. And Jesus submits to them. He does not fight back. He... This is not a, a personal onslaught. This is the government against him now. 
And that may very well be a very different thing. And he submits himself to the authorities. But notice what's driving him is the fulfillment of the word of God. If, if I were to stand against this evil right now, all of us would still be under curse. For the joy set before me, I am ready to endure. Father, not my will, yours be done. Are you saying that if uh, that crowd approached him had not been the authorities, yeah, Jesus that's would have okay. treated that situation differently? Even as I'm talking here, I'm realizing um, that this text may actually not fall under the category that I originally gave it. That's what's happening while I'm talking. I'm realizing, okay, I have a category that says um, there's a place to submit to the government even when they are corrupt and abusive. And that may actually be what, I think that's what Jesus was doing, that it may not have been a context for using the sword because he was submitting to authority. In contrast to Personal assault. Personal assault. The Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan when the man went up from Jerusalem, from went up from Jericho to Jerusalem and he and robbers overtook him. What they did to that man would have been a, a justifiable context for a response. So even as I'm teaching, I'm saying, I think I just re, I categorized this in the wrong spot. Um let me finish my comment, and then I'll, I'll come to you, Paul. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He is being driven. So I need to ponder this further. But what's driving him to, to, to say the sword is wrong is the predictions of his death, the necessity of his death. So I... I'm wrestling inside here to figure this out. In the above three texts, Jesus willingly relinquishes his right to bear arms in light of the Father's mission on his life. Now I'm questioning, even as I'm teaching, whether the right fits into this context. The earlier call to take two swords and the question, how or have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, both strongly suggest that Jesus assumed that the defense of self and others was indeed justified when con- confronted by unjust assault. Paul. I'm seeing this more as on Jesus' part. You know, you go back to Matthew where he says, I could, call my, I could call my father. He could send 12 legions. It's like, okay, do I have the right to defend myself? Yes. However... There's a greater mission here. If I don't defend myself, if I take the take the abuse, take the sacrifice, put my it's part of the salvation plan. He's working toward the mission. So strategically, he's thinking, this is not the place for me to use the legal force that I may otherwise have, because I'm God. I don't have to put up with this. I'm gonna put up with it for the greater good. As I say, I mean the text in general distinguish between persecution, that is your Harm coming to you because of the gospel and general banditry. Yep. Right. That's yes. And I'm I'm making a distinction there right. between persecution for the sake of the name and um, 
selfish assault uh, and abuses that could come on anyone. All right, so if the authorities come to your home to take you away because of a name, that's one thing, you submit. But if bandits try to break in, then that's different. It is different. The bandits are different than the police officers. It seems striking in his use of as a, if a robber, in light of the Old Testament text that you had put up, it seemed like Jesus was saying, this is obviously overblown, it's an unjust response. You can see the, the inequity, if you will, of the, the government coming to get him. He knew he hadn't done anything wrong. So the sword on their response didn't seem to match up. So he was being right. obedient, but to the father, not just submitting to the right. He is. Government. That's that's a good point. He is his obedience in this point is what's driving him. In his words, is his obedience to the father and the father's purposes, rather than to the government. And and so, however we weigh all this out, he that has to be accounted for. What comes to his in his lips is that he is obeying his father. Not my will, yours be done. And that's driving him all the way through his surrender to suffering. John? A couple of months ago, Jerry Falwell Jr. was imploring the students at right. school to uh, take up arms, conceal carry, that type of thing, he in was. response to the Muslim threats in the world. Right. And John Piper contacted him. He did. And, and dialogued with him just to make sure he was getting his whole thought process through and everything. And John wrote an article. Yes, he did. And maybe you saw it. I did. And there was, a lot of, there was a lot of response to it. And then he talked about... Perhaps more response than any DG blog post in history. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about that passage in Luke, and for the yeah. interpretation, he referred to Daryl Bach. He did, yes. And Daryl Bach said that the sword in that passage is symbolic. Correct. And I thought to myself, okay, symbolic for what? And if the sword is symbolic in that passage, are also the knapsack, the cloak, and the money bag, are they symbolic too? Very good point. So, you know, maybe you wanted to uh, touch on that. <laughs> so, in my, in my raising this issue, I am, Pastor John, he had nine points. His eighth point was that if someone was to intrude into my house and go after my wife, he said, I don't know what I would do. And there was a lot of response to that. Too. And and this presentation. Okay, so then he had pushback. And then at the Desiring God Conference of Pastors and Church Leaders, he made a comment building upon that from some of the pushback. And he that this is where Pastor John said, spend a million dollars to see the mission of the kingdom expand. And Okay, there is justification, he said, to spend 10 cents on your gun. But put the focus here on the kingdom and on its expansion. And what I'm trying to do is give clarity and biblical warrant for the 10 cents. And to say, if someone comes into my house, I have in good conscience, and I believe justifiable before justifiable before God, and indeed the necessity before God to fight for the welfare of the oppressed and the broken and the weak and the vulnerable, if they're my children or if they're your children. I think your wife will appreciate that. Or my wife. 
<laughs> he's in that list too. And so I'm trying to say, and th- this coming Wednesday, all the faculty are going to be meeting and talking about this issue for two hours with Pastor John. And that's why I said, I'll pick that question this week. <laughs> so uh, time is over. Let me just walk through. I think I can be done in three minutes. You've heard that it was said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You heard that back there. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I think Jesus here is correcting a misappropriation of an Old Testament text that was designed for the state, and people in his day were claiming it for their own. I have the right to come after you, to avenge you for the wrong you've done me. And Jesus is saying, no, no. The law of retaliation does not work that way. It's applied to the state. He is not explicitly referring to... Well, let's just note this. He is Whatever he's saying here is not countering the sword that's mentioned in Romans 13. Point one. Jesus' statement confronts the misappropriation of Old Testament law. He denounces personal retaliation when such a rule is given solely to the state and its agents. He does not, however, denounce either self-defense... That is not retaliation. That's protection. It is not premeditated. How can I get back at him? How can I bring vengeance on him for what he's done me? No, this is in the moment, caught in the act, response. Working for the protection and welfare of yourself, your own life, and for the lives of those around you. So I'm distinguishing this. Lawful self-defense is affirmed by the state, and any death that comes... I'm saying that the state gives permission for all of us to engage in lethal self-defense. If it can be proven that it's done in the right context. This is not our goal. Our goal is not to take life. Our goal is to save life. And sometimes that means others have to die. You hear the difference? And I pray this never comes to this point in my own life or in yours Lawful self-defense is affirmed by the state, and any death that comes is viewed as an extension of the state's sword-wielding power. So here is my list of final syntheses of the day. Christians must not avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, executed through his just rulers. Christians should expect persecution and tribulation, and should respond without retaliation in order to bear witness to Christ. God's kingdom expands by sharing and suffering, not the sword. Christians should expect persecution and tribulation. Believers must love our enemies and ever ever remembering that God is our refuge. Murder is a capital crime worthy of the death penalty. Humans must seek to preserve life. When someone is assaulted, the Bible justifies defending oneself and others at times with lethal force. That is, the objects or witnesses of an attempted murder, kidnapping, or rape may justly use lethal means to thwart the perpetrators. One may relinquish the right to self-defense for the sake of of mission. Here's my summary. Following a recent blog post by Pastor John, Christians should not carry concealed weapons for the purposes of avenging ourselves, retaliating for unjust treatment, handling hostility, advancing the Christian cause by force, returning evil for evil, or resisting persecution. Pastor John makes all those points in his article, and I fully agree. But acts of terror and assault are different, different than any of these. And when faced with such realities, I think the Bible teaches us that lethal force is justifiable, but not required. (laughs) 
And we'll see what Pastor John thinks this Wednesday. <laughs> Let me pray. Dear Father, talking about lethal force is so scary because life is so precious. I don't want to ever have to take the life of another or even be faced with that possibility in such a context of horror, rape, kidnapping, murder. But I thank you that you've given us your book and that even with tough questions you can guide us to know how to respond ethically and in a God-honoring way to work for love and for truth when chaos reigns. I pray that you would guard your people from the work of the evil one. That we would not operate in fear. That we would not seek retaliation or vengefulness. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. May that be the driving force of our lives. And may we fear the one who can not simply kill the body, but who can kill both body and soul in hell. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.